my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to take the first 20 minutes. Matt told me I would have 20 minutes. I called him last night. I'm like, I can't get it down to that. He didn't budge, so I got it down to that. So we're going we're gonna, to gonna go through Mark chapter 13, which is the next in the series um, going through the Gospel of Mark. And so I'll take the first 20 minutes and do a kind of a historical overview, and then Matt's going to come behind me with the next section and go through the applications, the warnings that Jesus gives us in this, um, in this passage. So if you are someone who wants to write notes, I'm going to give you my three points right up front, and then you can put everything underneath it. So point one in Mark 13 is the rebuke, point two is the revelation, and point three is the reality. And I'm going to just speak from that. All right, so we're going to start reading, and I'm going to, I normally like to read through the passage and then come back and comment, but I don't have time, so we're just going to read, comment, read, comment, and try to get through it that way. As he was going, chapter 13, verse 1, as he was going out of the temple complex, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, across from the temple complex, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? <clears throat> so, as a reference point for starters, the disciples were not wrong. The temple was flatly amazing. So we're going to talk about it for a little bit here at the beginning. Um, if you remember your Bible history, you'll remember that at the time of the Babylonian exile, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he smashes the temple to pieces. There's nothing left of it. He smashes the wall of Jerusalem. It's all over. Hauls them off for 70 years. And then when Cyrus, when the empire shifts and Cyrus becomes the leader, he makes an edict that allows the Jewish people and the other peoples, but the Jewish people in particular, to go back home and rebuild their city and their temple. And he even gives them the supplies to do so. And so they rebuild it. And when they get it rebuilt, and they, and they uh, have their ceremony at the end of it, it says that the older folks cried because they said it wasn't nearly as beautiful as the one that Solomon had created. So that was 400 years before this. That temple technically was still standing, but it was not in good shape before Jesus comes on the scene. And so, um, again, the empire has shifted. It went from Persian to Greece, and then went through some pretty severe things with Greece, and then Rome comes on the scene. And so by the time Jesus shows up and he's talking to his disciples, Rome is now the leader. So we're going to go back and just look a little bit. So when, in 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes is the leader, the, the Grecian leader, the Seleucid governor, and he does some pretty traumatic stuff. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the, the temple becomes kind of mangled over time. And Herod the Great, the same Herod that will actually kill all the children in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus, at the beginning of his reign, when Rome puts him in as the leader and as the king of Judea, he, 
he's of Edomite descent. Well, the Edomites and the, that would be Esau's descendants and the Jews didn't get along very well. And so the Jews didn't really like him. And so in order to kind of placate them, he decides to go on a, a building spree and he takes the temple and he does a major restructuring of it in 20, starting in 20 BC. And in doing so, he, he does some neat things. So for instance, the, um, what we think of as the Temple Mount, like, you know, we see the Wailing Wall and you look at pictures and there's this huge retainer wall and a big flat spot on the top. There's about 40 acres enclosed inside of that. That was Herod. He filled in a bunch of the valley, built these massive, they said some of the stones in the walls on the retainer part of it weigh as much as a million pounds. That's 500 tons. I don't have a clue how you can move something that's 500 tons. But he expands it greatly, and then he takes the temple, and what he does is pretty cool. They train priests to be stonemasons, because remember, the temple is in active operation. So they can't bring Gentiles in or people that aren't priests, because they'll defile the temple. So they train priests to be stonemasons, and then the priests reconstruct the temple under Herod's leadership. And so in 20 BC, that starts, and they said it took them about 18 months to recreate the temple. It's covered in marble with gold trim, so it's beautiful, and huge stones. Matter of fact, when the disciples say, look at these massive stones, this project will actually continue on until AD 64, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, is when they finally finish the entire process. So one of the things that I wondered, like what prompted the disciples to say this? They've been out of the temple all along. Maybe they were doing some construction. Maybe it was a big pile of stones, you know, like they had just cut, and they're like, whoa, look at those big stones, Jesus. And so he says, I want to tell you something. They won't even be one stone standing on another. Now, I think, this is my opinion, I think if he had said to them, there will come a time that the temple will be abandoned and neglected, and there will be trees growing through the pavement here, I think they could have understood that. But I think in some ways, physically, they looked at him and thought, you can't undo stonework like that. How, what do you mean there won't be one stone? Who would go through the trouble of undoing something that was so difficult to do to begin with? I think they were just like absolutely baffled by his statement. So then later on, that evening probably, they walked out and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is sort of like if you were Jerusalem and you would walk through the valley and I come up here and I'm sitting on the Mount of Olives and I'm looking uh, west over the city, I believe it is, from the Mount of Olives and they're looking at the temple complex. And so... They're probably whispering, who's going to talk to him about it? And finally, four of them come to him and they say, when is this going to happen, Jesus? So that's the rebuke. That's number one rebuke. Second, the revelation. And so he begins to answer them. So we're going to go through this, and this is the majority of the text is right here. Um, Verse 5, Jesus begins by telling them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. First section is his speaking to them in general. This is the thing that the world, that happens in the world. We live in a broken world. And I think in some ways, for me growing up, it's always been like if there's an earthquake, somebody in my life will say, Sign of Jesus coming. But in some ways, Jesus actually undoes it here. He says, don't worry about that. These are things that are, you're always going to have war. You're always going to have rumors of war. You're always going to have earthquakes and famines. Now, and there are indications that it increases at the end. But he really seems to say to them, this is not something that you should look at and bother about. These are things that are just the way life is, the brokenness of life. 
And so then he goes on to talk to them in verse 9. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrins. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Then brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and put them to death. And you'll be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. So this section um, I've titled, like the first one was general, now it's specific. This is to them. And I, I think we can take it as well, like it can be to us as well, because it applies Christians throughout the ages, even particularly today, are suffering persecution and being hated and being betrayed. But I think Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, men, this is what you have ahead of you. You've chosen to follow me. I've chosen you. It's going to be rough. But if you endure to the end, I'll deliver you. And so um, I, I thought about when in book of Acts, it opens with Peter and John going into the temple and they heal the lame man. And what happens to him? Immediately, they're called before the Sanhedrin. They are given words to say in that moment, and they are flogged, and they go home rejoicing that they're found worthy to suffer for Jesus. And I can't help but think when they're going home rejoicing, they're thinking, he told us this would happen. He's still with us. He knew what he, we can trust him, right? So that's the specific part of this that, I, that applies to us as well. This will be your life and the others who follow me. Now, we get to a part that's a bit of a struggle for people. So we're going to go through this. We're going to read 14 through 27 as a segment, and then we'll talk about it. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of the world, which God created until now and never will be again. Unless the Lord limited those days, no one would survive. But he limited those days because of the elect whom he chose. Therefore, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, look there, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four wind, from the ends of the earth to the end of the sky. Uh, this that he's referencing will be a very deceptive, full of deception, full of terror-filled time. And then he says, I'm coming back. I'm going to... So I struggled with this because I believed in going into this, I believe that this had dual fulfillment. Like there was a part of it that's for a future time, and there was a part of it that, re, that um, concerned the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 40 and the destruction of the temple. And I've, I've, I've thought differently, and I'm going to explain why I do. And so I'm going to share with you why I don't think that this is referring to the fall of Jerusalem. I think it's specifically and only referring to the end times, something that's still to happen. In order to do that, I want to jump to Luke, which is the parallel passage in Luke chapter 21. You don't have to go there. I'm just going to read. Um, there's about two verses in there that I want to read. So if you go to Luke 21, 
it tracks, like the, the track of the passage, like Matthew 24, tracks along the same concepts that Jesus is saying here. But when he gets to this point in Matthew, he talks about the abomination that causes desolation. Don't go up, if you're on the housetop, don't come down, run. It, it gives a, the same feel that Mark has. But when you get to the Gospel of Luke, this is what it says. Got to get to the right chapter. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. All right. Mark was, best people can tell, was written first. Matthew and Luke were written afterwards. Luke was probably written in the 50s. Um, maybe early 60s. But the passage in Luke fits exactly with the fall of Jerusalem. In AD 66 um, was the beginning of the trouble. Um, the Jews rioted because of something that the Romans did. The Romans sent in a general to try to quell the population. It got worse. He was pushed back out. And so a man by the name of Vespasian came in in 67, and he started in Galilee and just started working north to south through Israel, squishing the rebellion. Unfortunately for the Roman side of things, he got into Judea in 67, and then in 68, uh, Nero committed suicide back in, in Rome, left a power vacuum at the top of the empire, which was immediately filled by three squabbling men, and so the Senate voted for Vespasian, who was an actual wise man back in, but he was on the east side of the, so they voted him emperor. So he had to leave Israel and go back to Rome to become emperor. So right as he's closing in on Jerusalem, he bails out and has to go back for empire work. 68 comes and goes, and in AD 70, Titus, Vespasian's son, Vespasian sends him back to finish the job because the Jews are still pitching a fit over there. And so when he comes in in AD 70, he goes down to finish the job his dad did. And in April, he gets to Jerusalem and he builds siege walls against it. So the, the chapter in Luke says, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, and it, the impression is, it's not the urgency. It's not, don't go back in the city. And what we what we found is that when Titus came in, he trapped like there was there was over a million people in the city that normally wouldn't be there because he trapped a bunch of people that had come for Passover, and so huge amounts of people died that wouldn't have normally been in the city. Had they listened to Jesus' warning, they wouldn't have been there. And we know this: the Jew, I mean, the Christians who lived in Jerusalem were looking for this. And so they fled when they saw the Roman army coming, and they went 50 miles north to a city called Pella, and so they were largely saved. And uh, so I say that to say this. I think the passage in Mark is part of the same conversation that Jesus had, because it shows up in Matthew as well. But it seems like to me, when I look at those two, that the Gospel of Luke has one that the Christians recognized and got out. But if you had been waiting for the abomination that causes desolation that Mark talks about, it didn't happen. There was nothing like that that happened. In 167 BC, when Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the temple and, and messes things up, trying to get the Jews to conform, he brings an altar to the god Zeus, the, the, the Greek god, and sets it in the temple, and then forces the Jews 
to sacrifice pigs on the altar to Zeus in the temple to Jehovah. If that isn't a picture of the abomination of desolation, I don't know what is. And so, and they recognize it as such. And then in 63 BC, Pompey, another general, comes in and he goes into the temple. He puts down another rebellion and he goes into the temple and wanders around in there and goes into the Holy of Holies. So some people would say, well, that's an abomination because the Gentiles are not supposed to be in the Holy of Holies, which was true. But, but there's nothing really that corresponds to it. Josephus gives an accounting of, of priests that were killed, their blood spilled in the temple. And he says, you know, maybe that was. And then some people say, well, Titus and the, and the Romans coming in and running over and burning the temple down and, and like destroying everything. And they say that Titus actually had to build scaffolding around the temple and put lots of wood on it and burn it to get it hot enough so that they, you know, kind of weaken the stone so they could take it apart and actually do what Jesus said and tear it down so there was not one stone standing on another. But if you had been waiting for that to occur, it would be too late. That came at the end of the desolation, not at the beginning. So there would have been no way to escape. That's my surmising. So I think Luke, in the parallel passage, is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. But I think this is actually talking about something that will happen yet at an undisclosed time in our future. All right, so, but they asked him, they said, when is this going to happen? And so he gives them, in the next section, their sign. Starting in verse 28, learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as this branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that he is near at the door. I assure you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right, this is a, as someone I read recently said, this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. This generation shall not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And I thought, it's not the most embarrassing verse in the Bible to me. It just has to be dealt with. So I can, I can look at it two different ways. I think that Jesus could have said, and there's, we don't know the whole conversation. This seems to come at the end of him saying, this time of tribulation, etc. This generation shall not pass away. But in Luke, he's clearly talking about the fall of Jerusalem. So in that application, if all of that took place in the same conversation, he could have said, and it could mean either one or both. All right, disciples, I'm just letting you know this stuff about the fall of Jerusalem, this will all happen while this generation is alive. And it would. It would, within 40 years of this point, the temple would be gone. Or it could mean that when this abomination of desolation stands in a temple and we don't understand that yet but when that when you see that sign that will also happen from that point to Christ's return will also happen within a generation span it could mean that one it could mean the first one it could mean both of them I don't know but but they do fit it's not the most embarrassing verse in the Bible to me but I wanted to to go over that with you all right and then finally number three the reality we do not know when he'll come back. And I don't know even how to understand that. I know this. He said, he's coming back. He said, no one knows the day or the hour. But he gives us signs. So I'm going to go with Jesus and I'm going to say, he could come back right now. He could come back five years from now. He could come back. He can come back whenever he decides that it's ready to come back. My job is to not know, not try to pry open the hands of God, but to live my life ready at any moment. 
Great man. And I, I do want to point out, if y'all recall, this past winter and spring, we were studying Mark, and then we took a break in the Psalms. So if you're just thinking over the last couple weeks that we were in the Psalms, why in the world are we now in Mark 13? It's because we're picking up with Mark where we left off going 13 onward here in the fall. So um, here we have in Mark 13, I'd like to share with you uh, five warnings that we see in this passage that we've read. Five warnings, and then I'd like to pull some truths out from that that follow. So we see, and as Micah pointed out, there were two questions here that Jesus was asked. Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Well, if you think back, when Jesus was often asked questions, he didn't often answer it straightforward the way we would think. He didn't give a time, as Micah pointed out. He didn't say this is when, but rather he started it off with a warning. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. And the parallel passage in both Matthew and Luke pretty much have his answer the same word for word. Watch out that no one deceives you. And of course, we know what being deceived looks like. At various times, we might have been deceived. If you think about a time in which someone has lied to you, or if you've got little kids in the house, you have to teach them not to lie. So how do we know when Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you, how do we know whether we're not whether we're being deceived or not. I believe if you already know the truth, you're not going to be deceived. So we see deception all around us. We saw from the Garden of Eden, deception all the way to in the future here. People are going to be deceived. But if we have the truth, we can know right from wrong. We can know what's happening. So what is the truth? How do we know what the truth is? We, of course, we have the Bible. I believe that there are places in this where we're reading about the truth not being deceived. It's referring to the gospel. You know, I believe we have these truths, the Bible, the gospel, and we are to not be deceived by outside influences because we can hold on to truth. So the first um, warning that we see here is watch out that no one deceives you. So let's not be deceived. So if I were to ask the question, what should we do in preparation for the second coming? Don't be deceived. Know the truth. I see another warning here in this passage. Be on your guard, as in verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local counselors, councils excuse me, and flogged in synagogues. I think that that can not only be applied to them, but us today. Be on your guard. What does it mean to be on your guard? You know, if you think of a bodyguard, or you think of what is someone protecting 
there's a, a physicalness to that. However, I don't believe Jesus was talking about being on your guard in the sense of putting up your dukes. You know, you think about Peter when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was physically on his guard when he pulled out his sword and cut off the ear. But I don't think Jesus is telling us to be on your guard ready to fight. I think he's talking about guarding that truth that we're not to be deceived about. You know, we are to guard ourselves. We are to to be ready, planted firm in the truth. So what are we to do concerning preparing for the second coming of Christ? We're to be on our guard. We are to be ready to guard the truth. Um, be ready to guard our truth. The third warning I think we see here is be alert. Be alert. If you go down, and a lot of these weave together throughout the passage, but we see in verse 33, the repeating of be on your guard, be alert. Some translations even add and pray, which of course needs to be involved in everything we do, but be on guard and be alert. Well, is there a difference between being on guard and being alert? Well, there, they're very much the same, but I think when you think about being alert, it involves um, a lot of paying attention. You know, there's a lot of things we do in life that we can do half asleep. You know, get up, make coffee, get up, do different things. But there's a lot of tasks and a lot of things we have to do that require our full attention, our full. We have to be alert. And right here, Jesus is saying, we have got to be alert. We've got to be watching out. We've got to be, when we're guarding this truth, when we're guarding the gospel, we have got to make sure we are alert and are aware around uh, what's going on. We see... In verse 35, therefore keep watch. Well, let me read 30. I don't believe Michael read 32 onward. No one will, yeah, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So, he emphasizes here to watch. Um, so what is the difference between standing watch and standing guard? I think in some respects, when you think about someone taking a night watch or someone watching, they're not only being alert, but they're looking down. They're, they're on a guard tower. They're trying to see what's coming down the pike. They're aware of what's going on 
around them. Have your binoculars ready, uh, so to speak. And then sandwiched in between those, that verse 35 and 37 of watch, we see, do not let him find you sleeping. Um, Do not find him sleeping. That is kind of saying the same thing, but in the negative form. You know, in some regard, watching and sleeping are antonyms, right? And so he says, keep watch, and then says the exact same thing. If you didn't understand watching, he says, don't be found sleeping. And then he says again, keep watch. Uh, keep watch. Um, and so I want to I point out one thing at this point here. Um, when we read about a servant who would be sleeping, I don't believe that that is representing someone who's placed their faith in Christ. If you think about someone, a watchman who is sleeping, I think that that is symbolizing someone who has not placed their faith in Christ. And so often when we read this, this passage, of course, we're focusing on what does this mean to the believer? How do we wait as believers for the second coming? But realize there's plenty of people out there who are sleeping and have been deceived. And in Luke 17, 26 through 30, we read, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So when we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ and being united with Christ, it also is a time of judgment. You know, we see that for us, the believer, we will have celebration. We can look forward to the end of the end of the end. However, judgment awaits for those who are found sleeping. So what does that mean to us? What does that practically mean to us? Well, in this passage, we do see a verse about preaching the gospel. I think if we know that judgment is coming on those around us, we need to be encouraging people. We need to be out spreading the gospel. And in verse 10, it says, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. So what does that mean? I want to point three things out about this verse. One, there are some people who, who, would, who would say that this is specifically talking up to these disciples who are living, and the all nations is referring to the known world there. It's going to be preached to the known world first, and then the destruction of Jerusalem. But I think an equally... Um, valid argument that that I would tend to believe is that it's talking about the whole world before the coming of Christ. Um, And 
and the, the reason why in the Matthew 24 parallel passage, it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But yet, despite which view is more accurate in the Mark account, I believe that when you read this verse in light of the Great Commission, because, you know, not long after this, Jesus was going to give the Great Commission. I think if you read this in light of the Great Commission, you'll see that we have a responsibility to go to all the nations. And I find it very interesting how this sentence is sandwiched between two verses about persecution. You're going to be standing before governors and kings as witnesses to them. The gospel is going to be preached to all nations. And then he says again, when you are arrested and brought to trial. Think about this. When we think about unreached people groups, when we think about unreached people groups who need to hear the gospel, where are those people groups located? In places where there's persecution. We see in the Middle East and North Africa, places where the gospel has got to be preached. And it's going to be sandwiched between persecution. That's who needs to be hearing the gospel. And so I believe that there's very much uh, here in this verse, the drawing of preaching the gospel and there being persecution. Um, and so we read here that in verses 9 through 13, there will be persecution. And I think there's a few things right here that we can glean from persecution uh, as we approach the end times and for people who are actively today being persecuted. Verse 11, the Holy Spirit will guide you under persecution. We see here, just say, when they're thrown before those, um, those men and whoever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going to be guiding us under persecution. In verse 15, I think there's another thing we can glean about, about persecution. When he says, let no one on the roof go to his house or go down or enter the house to take anything out, I think he's saying, stay focused on the important. You know, if you think about priorities, we all understand the concept of prioritizing. And I'm sure we've all been in a situation where you wake up and you realize it's gotten late, you're doing everything you can to get out the door, and you realize, I haven't poured my cup of coffee, well, it's too late. Or you go halfway to your car and you realize, maybe I ought to pack a raincoat, but it's inside, I don't have time to go back in. When we see the day of Christ coming, our priorities are going to change very quickly. So we see that we must stay focused on the important. Um, also, in verse 23, he says, of course, he repeats the be on your guard, and he says, I have told you everything ahead of time. I have told you everything ahead of time. So we know 
what we need to know. Jesus has not left us unprepared, and I think that that is encouragement to us today. We might think, why didn't you just straightforward answer the question as to when it's going to happen? We might think that that's what he should have said, but in reality, he's given us everything we need to know. Um, So what does being prepared for the second coming adequately look like? I want to point out 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Well, actually, I I won't, what we'll do, yeah, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy. And the line just keeps going on describing what's going to be happening in the last days. But let's get down to verse 10. You, however, talking to to the believers, you, however, know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right here, I think we're seeing, we're seeing that we need to continue. We need to have perseverance. Uh, I think he's saying, We need to surround ourselves with godly influence. He's saying we need, again, to watch out that we're not being deceived. So when we think about about persecution and what may lie ahead in the future, the Holy Spirit is going to guide us. We need to stay focused on the important, realize we know what we need to know, And so with this comes the perseverance. If we go back to the Mark 13, we read in verse 13 here about perseverance. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He who stands firm, we must stand firm. And I think that verse 13 can be coupled here with... uh, with verse 22. So be on your guard. um, Excuse me, verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. I think that if we have given our lives to Christ, if we have given our lives to Christ, we have the truth. We're not going to be deceived because we're guarding the truth. And 
it comes with comfort. You think about all this stuff, and the chapter in verse 31 gives us comfort. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So regardless as to what the disciples experienced 2,000 years ago, regardless as to what we're going on today, and regardless as to the future with the second coming, we know that the one thing that's going to last forever is these words of Jesus. And I think verse 37 wraps up the chapter the same way we had started with the warning of watch. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So we need to watch out that no one deceives you. We need to be on your guard, be alert, keep watch, and do not be found sleeping. I think that is what the application we can get from Mark 13 right here. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.